This is the Brewed Up Apologetics podcast where we aim to look at and think about the world biblically through the lens of craft brewing. So grab your favorite sipper, whether that be a beer, coffee, kombucha, or soda, with me, Tyler Henry, as we begin to allow Jesus to redeem our culture and the world around us through sound biblical thinking and apologetics. So today we're going to dive into theism and its coherence. This is also known as the doctrine of God, and within that we need to build a theology of God. Doing so is going to take us on a journey through God's attributes and his nature, but first we need to learn a little bit about, you know, what theism is. So we all, and with that we also need to be on the same page when it comes to vocabulary. So when we encounter any big words like theism or deism or aseity, which is the first thing that we're going to get to when we talk about the biblical God, that we're not getting confused. And you know exactly what I'm talking about, and you can kind of take that information in and do do with it what you want and know what I'm talking about and knowing what the scholarship is saying. So theism is the belief in a personal and infinite God. Now, if we contrast this with deism, whose God that they worship is infinite but not personal, you know that, that kind of doesn't sit well with me. You know it because I don't want to worship a God that has no interest in me, other than just watching what I'm doing. So the theistic God has this this relational side of things where He wants to get to know me, and because of that wanting to get to know me, that kind of lights a little spark under under my butt and says, "Hey, uh, I want to get to know you as well." You know, there's a it's a two way street. So from this definition of theism, we have a God that is knowable in a relational sense as well as all-encompassing. So relationally, we can get to know this theistic God, and you know, that's the God of the Bible. And we're going to take a look at what some of the biblical evidence is saying. I'm going to give you some some biblical passages to go through and to, to look up if you would like to. And, but we're, it's not going to be an exhaustive list. So then we're going to move into a little bit more of the ph- philosophical side of things. Um, but before we move into that, as I mentioned before, I'm going to kind of give you a little bit of a review of what I'm sipping on through the entire thing. Um, and today it's a Goose Island IPA. D- nothing fancy from them, just their straightforward IPA. It's got this very grapefruit forward note to it and it's really crisp and refreshing i know i wouldn't i wouldn't think that something like this that's brewed on a little bit more of a mass scale um but still is considered can be considered a craft brew would be this heavy on flavor um but yeah it's it's got a nice nice kind of amber color and Florally, grapefruity, as well as it's it's not too it's not too heavy on the hops, but it's also not too heavy on on the malt, which I I, don't, I personally like because then I don't have to be completely puckered whenever I sip it, or I don't have to feel after I take a sip that I have to wait a little bit for it to digest because it 
it just sits really heavy in your stomach. So it's really, really nice for a conversational aspect like we're doing right now. So I also wanted to start off with a little bit of my story and where all of this apologetic stuff started. And for me, it, it goes all the way back into high school. And with, with my best friend, you know, he had this period of his life where he was doubting God. And it just, he had this, this wanting to know if God existed. He wanted the proof. And he was like, okay, God, if you're real, then, then show me the opposite. Show me the, show me a demon. And, you know, as, as children, we were always taught to not challenge God and him doing this, God took the challenge and said, okay, I'm going to give you what you're asking for. So he ended up getting this, this answer to prayer. And we both ended up actually experiencing the demons. So that left me with questions like, okay, well, if demons exist, then God has to. And I started digging into it and really wanting to know why I believed in Jesus, why I believed in God, in the God of the Bible. So that launched me into college. Um, we both graduated. He ended up starting off at Liberty. And then I went to a local, a local state school um, for, for education. And I started going to this campus ministry um, called CSF, or Christian Student Fellowship. And it was... It was there that I met this guy, or the pastor Pat, and he he was very very well thought, um, and I, that's not something I have really experienced, you know, in, in my life as a Christian, and that fascinated me. I mean, it, there wasn't there wasn't a day, so our meetings were on Wednesdays, and there wasn't a Wednesday that that we didn't get a Greek lesson or a Hebrew lesson. Like he loved that stuff, and I thought that was super fascinating. You know, here's this pastor, you know, that's actually younger than me. And he, he's well thoughtful. He's like, he's thoughtful. And I, wow, I've never experienced this, um, at least to my knowledge. So I started, we started talking and he pointed me in the direction of apologetics and Ravi Zacharias. And I, up until this point, I've been kind of looking into it and I didn't really know what it was called. So I started reading a Ravi Zacharias book and just consuming all of it that I could. And I couldn't, I, I couldn't get enough. You know, I had all these questions that I didn't know I had. And it was just awesome to see like, oh, there's people out here that are actually thinking about the questions and thinking about, okay, well, why is Christianity true? So if we look at, um, if we look at the whole Christian side of things, you know, like God, you know, we're, today we're talking about the whole doctrine of God. So, you know, what, what about this, this man up in the sky that we can't see? Um, you know, there's this, there's this whole concept of, you know, the whole, the, the cliche saying it's not a religion it's a relationship and there is this relational aspect to to being a christian but there's also this intellectual side of things and the intellectual side i was never really never really um up to date on that it was just something that i thought that was for pastors and that they were the ones that were supposed to know and we were the ones that were supposed to consume but 
after looking into this apologetic stuff, I started thinking, okay, well, God is calling all of us to be intellectually savvy when it comes to our faith. So not only is, is God personal and intellectual, but he's also, he's also infinite. And that's infinitely relational and infinitely intellectual as well. And with the, on the infinite side, you know, he's got this, this chasm between us and him because, you know, we, we are not, we're not infinite. We are finite. And I think that's really, really interesting when it, when we think about the, you know, what, like the Western concept of things, you know, we think that we are the best, the best things ever to be in existence, but at the same time, we're, we're finite as humans. We, the only thing that could even possibly become infinite is our mind and our soul, and even then, we can only grasp so much. So there's this chasm between with God and us, which then should cause us to try to search and find God, rather than to retreat into ourselves. Um, but also on the personal side, you know, he's he's also like us. I mean, he's got this mind, he's got this free will, um, but he's also got this this relational side of things. Uh, and that's, that's where he, you know, really comes and he meets with us. But at the same time, he, that separates us apart from the animals and the plants. You know, we also, we all are living and we all, we all grow and we all develop, but animals and plants don't have a mind. They're not personal. They're not relational. That's what se- sets us apart from them. But when it comes to the attributes that God, that God has, um, with us being finite and him being infinite, if he's infinite, there's the objection that, you know, can we really know anything about God? And yes, to put it bluntly, yes, we can. But at the same time, there's, we can only go so far because we are, we are finite. And the thing is though, everything in existence has qualities and those qualities can be, can be learned about. I mean, look at, if we look at the Bible, that's just God's account of his actions in this world. So if we are going to actually have a concept and a good theology and a good doctrine of God, we need to look at, you know, what what is the revelations from him that we have to actually work with? You know, this is all of the evidences that that are that are presented to us, you know, Avon Planiga was a really big proponent of this and when he incorporates things like Bayes' theorem, you know, it's one of those where okay, we can't really we can't really assess everything until we have all the available evidence regarding God. And that includes other different, like different religions. So if we're going to learn about God, we need to start with the most exclusive and then work out. That, that just seems like the most logical place to start because if you, can ex- if you can eliminate the most exclusive, the most exclusive religion, then at that, thing, at that point things get a little bit easier. So if the Bible is the account of God's actions in the world. To learn about God from the from the biblical about the biblical God, we need to go to the Bible. There's no other place for that. And there's this there's this church father, his name was Saint Anselm, and he had this concept based on, you know, the infinite side of God, and he had this thing where he called it the greatest conceivable being. And other people have put it in different ways. William Layton Craig likes to use maximally great. Um, I I could go either way on both of them. I don't really have a personal opinion or favor 
over one with one or the other. So with being maximally great, there's this concept of aseity. So that's the combination of two different words being ah and say, which just means self-existent. And scripture affirms this. I'll just give one or two examples, one from the New Testament and one from the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, Isaiah 40 and verse 17 through 23 speaks to this. And in the New Testament, John 1 and 1 through 3. So God, when it comes to this aseity, this ase, the self-existence, he is the source of everything. And he is the sustainer and the goal of all life outside of himself. He just is. You know, the whole, the verse, I am that I am. And Christ is said to have this as well. You know, in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about this. But at the same time, you know, Hebrews comes in and says, okay, well, Jesus was just God's instrument. While he was God, he was also God's instrument in physical instrument in this world. And that really just affirms the deity of Christ. And we'll get there at some point as well. You know, God doesn't depend on anything or anyone else for his existence. I mean, there's this word called contingent. And that just means it's based on something else. And his source and his energy and his sustaining comes from someone else. But just by God being self-existent, he cannot come from another God or another person or anything like that. He just is. And he doesn't depend on something else. I mean, if he is self-existent and it is necessary for him to exist, there is no... It's just not part of his nature to not exist. He just has to. And that's just part of being is. If that's the case, then he exists in every possible world. It doesn't matter if you, at this point, it doesn't matter if you hold to the multiple universe theory or the multiverse theory. He just is in every one of them. And again, here here's that, that concept from Anselm, that greatest conceivable being. So if it's possible, God must exist. And that's part of being the greatest conceivable being. If we can think about God existing in every possible world, then it's necessary and logically necessary that God exists. But that doesn't mean the universe has to exist. So the universe doesn't exist if God does not exist because the universe comes from God. The universe isn't necessary. So that answers the question, who made God? That question comes up all the time in, in the popular side of things. It's not, it's a question that when you really, really look into, you know, the doctrine of of God, it's not something that you really have to worry about and because it it explains itself. So now we're going to jump into God's eternity. We already know that he's self-existent, so that means he has to be eternal. Scripturally, it's affirmed as well in Psalm 90 and in Jude 25. But, you know, how does this work? Think about... Think about a mathematical line. You know, a line doesn't have a beginning and a line doesn't have an end. That's, I think, one of the easiest ways to conceptualize this whole God being eternal. But at the same time, he is outside of time. And that's because he exists outside of our conception of time. You know, our sense of time really began, it really began in, as soon as the the universe was created in, in Genesis, in 
you know, where does, where does that leave God in terms of relationship to us? Um, I, I really think that William Lane Craig hit it right on the, on the head with his tensed theory of time, which means that he is throughout infinite time, but at the same time, he's interjecting into it every so often. He just is there, you know, with that, that aseity. Like he is, he just is. And, and that's to be, to be contrasted with a tenseless theory of time where God is timeless, but he is completely outside of it. There is no way that he could interject into it because there is no, he doesn't have this moment by moment thing that we do. But on the tense theory of time, as soon as he interjects into and creates the universe, he now is then tensed, but at the same time, he knows what's going to happen because he created, he has, he has this plan, he has this omniscience, and we will get to omniscience. But how does this, how does this really work? Um, and how does, what, how does it apply to us? Um, and that's, that's where the omniscience comes in. You know, our, our time on earth is going to end. That's just, there's, that's just the, the human condition part or part of it. The only thing that's for certain in this life is that we're going to die. So if we're going to think about this as Christians, we have to make use of our time for Christ and to be as profitable for the kingdom of God as we can with the time that we do have. And that means, you know, evangelism and and learning as much as possible. You know, if if God wasn't able to interject into time and kind of be there right along there with us, I mean, that would kind of defeat the purpose of getting to know God. Because why would I want to get to know God or get to know a God that just kind of hit the, hit the play button and kind of sat back? You know, we're to be thinking of, of right living and to live in light of eternity. And if we are only thinking about a God that doesn't, that doesn't have this personal relationship and he just hits the play button, like in deism, then I don't want to be a part of that. So if God is, if God is everywhere or throughout all time, then he has to be omnipresent or ever present. In the Old Testament passages like Jeremiah 23 and in the New Testament, Acts 17, with God being ever-present or omnipresent, that doesn't mean that we should think that he is localized in a church or a place on earth. That's one of my big things with all of this, this stuff with the church and it being a holy place, which I, I really believe that you know it's, it's a place that we should respect, but we should respect all buildings. We should take care of the things that God has given us. And, you know, if you have a cup of coffee or you have some water or a snack or something like that during church or just even in the sanctuary in general, I mean, who really cares? It's a building. It's a place that we go to to worship God. What makes it any different than our home, especially during this whole coronavirus thing where we have to be? We have to be in our homes. We can't really leave. So what's the difference between having a coffee while you're listening to your pastor do do his sermon versus listening to your pastor do his sermon in the church sanctuary. So if we are to 
if we're to think of him as he is everything, you know, that, that makes him finite. If he is everything that is created, we're not, we're not moving from not God to God. We are going from God to God and we're moving through God. And that just doesn't make, that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But the way that we should think about God is related to this physical time and space. You know, he fills it kind of like a cup of water. You know, we, we fill, we fill a cup of water from a pitcher and that water fills every space of the container that it's in. And that's how we should think about God. And he, as soon as he comes into our universe and he inter, he intercedes into it, intervenes into it, he completely fills it. You know, that, you know, it really just talks about God's immensity. He's so immense that as soon as he comes and enters into our universe, he fills the entire thing. That is, it's kind of mind boggling to even think about. Um, as, as I'm thinking about it right now, I'm just kind of like imagining it. And because my mind can only grasp so much, I'm just like, wow, you know, if that's, if that's the God that of the Bible, that's a God that I want to be a part of. That's a God that I want to worship. And that, that immensity is it's it's also called in uh it's also called transcendence so he transcends space he is throughout he fills it and it's the same thing with time he fills time and not not in the sense that we typically think about i mean just with us being kind of quarantined to our to our homes that we're not we're trying to fill the time and be productive but that's not the type of filling that that I'm talking about here. What I'm saying is that he is there throughout time and space. He fills time and space completely. There is no empty spaces. There is no place where he is not. And that isn't just limited to his to his presence, but also his knowledge. His knowledge and power aren't they, they don't stop. They they go to the beginning of time of our time to the end of our time. If we, if you really think about it and you say like, okay, God, like, you know, what am I supposed to do? And you hear Christians all the time saying, God, what are we supposed to do during this coronavirus? We're not sure. We, we see that we see all of this evil guide us through. And right there, that is God's transcendence coming into play. He knows where, where we've been, but he's also completely aware of where we are going. You know, that, that, that kind of brings brings it all together, you know, with prayer. I mean, you know, where do we go from here with the coronavirus thing? But, you know, a lot of people we hear thanking for God. Thank you for, for being with us. Um, we should be thanking him for that. We shouldn't have to ask for God to come fill, fill us and be with us as we are listening to this podcast or that we are, or that he is with us at church. Like, we can invite him in, but it's, you know, why not be specific about it? You know, why not be specific? Like, okay, well, God, I know you're here. I know you're everywhere, but teach me something. I'm opening up my heart my, and my mind and my eyes to what you, what you have for me right now. Make this applicable to me. And I really think that that's how we should be praying. It's praying for specifics. And don't, don't just look at them. And ask him to be present because he already is. What do you want his presence to do? What 
what are you expecting God to do? You know, I'm not really one for all of the, like, name and claim it stuff, like you see with, um, like, Kenneth Copeland. But I do admire their expectancy of God to do something. And that's really how we should be praying. We should be praying with a certain level of expectancy of God to do something, but that we're not really saying, okay, God, do this. It's like, God, we are open and willing to follow you. Teach us, lead us, give us discernment. Not like with Kenneth Copeland's video that Rapzilla did a really cool uh, remix of, but where he blows the coronavirus away. It's like, come on, dude. Like, what do you think you're trying to do? So we're kind of going to shift gears a little bit right now. We're just talking about omnipresence. And we could go into omniscience and omnibenevolence and all of these other omnis. But we're going to shift gears a little bit to God's immutability. And this is something that I think we really have to have to think about extremely carefully. It's not saying that he can't be quiet. But what it is saying is that he is unchanging and he's unchangeable. He is perfect. And yet in the Old Testament, this is like Psalms 102 or Malachi 3, but also in the New Testament in James 1 and Hebrews 6. We see this all the time in from the skeptics. Like, okay, well, God said that he changed his mind. You know, it's this apparent contradiction from what we know and believe about God to what we see in the Bible, and there is an answer to that. There is an answer to that question, and the answer is that it is what's called an anthropomorphism, which just means that we give us as humans, we are finite, so we have to think about things in finite terms. So we give God these human qualities. I mean, we always hear about the hand of God being ever-present and ever doing something and he's always he's always active in this universe so god doesn't really have to have a hand in order to be god at that point you're kind of stepping into the whole mormon theology where he has a humanoid type of figure to him but in in terms of of answering this like okay what about this apparent contradiction here with god changing his mind you know that's just us trying to to make sense of what's going on you know we aren't or god isn't the one that changed we are the people that changed we are the fallible beings he is not so what about what about the differences between the old testament and the new testament the the saying you know the god of the old testament versus the god of the new testament and what are the differences how are they the same and i really i don't think that they are any different at all the only thing that changed was that God came into, physically came into the universe and into the world. He, what, he came down as, as the son in, in, in the form and in the person of Jesus. And it's, it's the same God. I mean, Jesus, Jesus saw the Old Testament God. That's the, that's the God that he worshiped. And if we are to be following Jesus, then we are to be following the Old Testament God. I mean, that's just the example that he led. And if we are to be examples of Christ, and we are to be imitators of Christ, then we should be imitating him in worshiping that Old Testament God. 
I mean, if you were going to nail down the differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's that the resurrection happened. Jesus died and he rose again. He conquered everything. He was our penal substitute. And we will get into penal substitution later if you want to kind of jump ahead a little bit or you want some want to know more right now. Um, there's this guy on YouTube, Mike Winger. He has an amazing, amazing study of it. And he goes through all of the different little facets of it. And it's really, really good. So go check that out. He's got a whole playlist on it. And if you are a little bit more of the if you're more of a reader than you are a listener or you prefer to have a little bit more of an academic side of things, there's a book called Pierce for Our Transgressions that both Mike and I really, really like. That book goes into, okay, well, Jesus died, and what did it do? How, how did he substitute himself for us on that cross? And what did, what did his crucifixion and resurrection actually do? So, but yeah, no, God, he didn't change. So... If he didn't change, then obviously he's perfect. And it's really just a consequence of his omniscience, his all-knowing. Like I said, we're going to get to that in a little bit because that's that kind of is a really big delineator between us and God. So, But at the same time, he knew that he was going to create. And it was just a matter of time that he would. Um, but it was also a matter of, okay, well, when is the best possible time for him to actually create but also when is the best time for jesus to come in to creation is is jesus assuming and here's a, here's another question is jesus assuming another nature and is that a change i mean yeah he he is assuming another nature but he's taking it on and it becomes a relational change it doesn't become it doesn't become an actual change in god it is just how he relates to us he didn't drop any of his omni attributes. He just chose not to act upon them. So what 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 does all this really kind of condense into? God is perfect. He is the permanent life and he is consistent. If God is perfect and God is permanent and consistent, I don't want to believe any other God. If you're starting out on this journey to really kind of either question God or debunk the Christian faith, this is the place to start because this is the only faith system or religion that has a perfect and consistent and permanent, all three combined in one religion. And that is the, is the faith and the religion of the Bible. You're not going to find that with Islam. You're not going to find that with Judaism. You're not going to find that with Mormonism or Latter-day Saints or Jehovah's Witness, or Buddhism. The closest that you're going to get is Judaism, but at the same time, Judaism stops where Christianity picks up. So, you know, as we, as we go, go from here, you know, what, what, is, what are things going to look like? How are we going to, to learn about God? And how, how are we going to take what God has given us and, and use it to, to have Him as the end of all things? the end and the means to do everything. Like I said earlier, that God God is the end goal of everything. And what is that going to look like? And that starts with not just not just having this relationship with him, but but knowing him and using our minds to really to really flow through things and and to, to love God using our minds. 
And that's a wrap on the first part in our exploration of Christian theism. Next week, we will tackle four more of God's attributes. Thanks for listening, and remember to stay thirsty for God's Word and be responsible in its use and application in our lives so that we can be confident in sharing our faith with those around us.